Good morning. Well, if you're new with us, I ask you to just to hang in there. <laughs> we have been doing a series on Sunday morning here at Calvary, which we've entitled The Battle for Truth. And in the course of this series, we've been looking at different teachings and different things that have entered the church, which we believe Paul and Peter, James, John, Jude, and Jesus himself warned us, warned us to be on guard against in the last days. Now, one of those that we looked at last week was the emerging church. If you're new with us, you may have never heard that phrase before, the emerging church. Well, there's a lot of Christian ministries that are beginning to sound the alarm. If you do a Google search on emerging church, you'd be amazed at what you find. One such ministry said, and I quote, Based on the reports we hear from our subscribers all over the world, there are many churches on the edge of apostasy. Many are subscribing to the latest postmodern fad called the emerging church, which attempts to reach the emerging generation with a new way of doing church, declaring that worship should now be a mystical and holistic experience using images, candles, stained glass windows, and even darkness to enhance spirituality, end quote. One of the authors I was reading on this subject said that a friend of his said to him one day that she had gone to an evangelical church and she thought she was in a Roman Catholic church because the pastor was crossing himself and in the church there were icons, candles, prayer stations, etc. In an evangelical church. One of the leaders of the emerging church, in fact, the grandfather of the entire movement, Brian McLaren, pastor and author of the controversial and award-winning book, A New Kind of Christian, a book that expressly argues that the Bible should not be regarded as infallible or authoritative. McLaren seeks unity between Catholics and Evangelicals, and applauds Chuck Colson for leading the way in this. Of course, Chuck was co-author of ECT, which we'll study or look at in just a moment. But many believe that the emerging church is part of a great revival, where the church, Protestant, Roman Catholic, Orthodox, and Evangelical, are all coming together in great unity. These are exciting times, they claim. In fact, in his book Megashift, author Jim Rutz says, and I quote, A megashift of spiritual power is about to put the world into vastly better shape. A whole new form of Christianity promises to bring a far greater impact than the Protestant Reformation, end quote. And many believe that the emerging church is leading the way toward a global Pentecost, which will see an unprecedented outpouring of God's Spirit upon this world that will save tens of millions of people and bring the kingdom of God to the earth. Even as Leonard Sweet, in his book, Soul Tsunami, enthusiastically declared, and I quote, God is birthing the greatest awakening in the history of the church. God is calling you to midwife the birth. Are you going to show up? End quote. Well, you know, many are not so enthusiastic 
about the emerging church. They don't quite share the enthusiasm as some of these folks do concerning it. In fact, they believe the emerging church is actually a dangerous and detrimental movement. Let me give you just a summary of what the emerging church is, its beliefs and practices. And by the way, there are other churches, many other churches, that are not classically considered emerging churches that have embraced some, if not many, of these same, uh, these same points that we're going to just, I'll just throw out to you. I'm not going to spend a lot of time elaborating. We did that last week. But um, what's going on in the church today? What do we see happening around us? Well, Scripture is no longer the ultimate authority for many well-known leaders of this what's called new evangelicalism. The gospel of Jesus Christ is being replaced by humanistic methods that promote church growth and a social gospel. There is more and more emphasis on what's in it for me in the here and now and less and less concern regarding the warnings of Scripture regarding the imminent return of Jesus and a coming judgment ahead for planet Earth. More and more Christian leaders are looking for a kingdom of God to be established here on the earth by human effort and deny that Jesus Christ will rule and reign in a literal millennial period that is to come. We are being told that Christianity needs to be reinvented in order to provide meaning for this generation. In order to reinvent Christianity, we are told we need to go back to the past and find out what kinds of experiences were successful back then and then use them to attract people to Christianity today. And so contemplative prayer is a major one on that list. We talked about that in detail last week. These experiences include icons, candles, incense, liturgy, and the sacraments, particularly the sacrament of the Eucharist. An experiential, mystical form of Christianity is being promoted to attract and reach the postmodern generation called the emerging church, which we studied in detail last week. Christianity is being dumbed down as the word of God comes under attack and images and sensual experiences are being promoted as the key to experiencing God. Many church leaders are beginning to consider that the Reformation went too far. There is a growing trend towards an ecumenical unity for the cause of world peace that claims there are many ways to God and that Jesus Christ is not the only way. They are reexamining the claims of the church fathers that communion is more than a symbol and for remembrance and that Jesus actually becomes present in the communion wafer. And finally, many bridges are being established that lead in the direction of unity with the Roman Catholic Church. For these reasons, many Christians don't see the emerging church as revival, but rather as a return to darkness. Now, I feel the need to stop here and just say this. If you're new with us, you need to understand where I'm coming from. I grew up in the Roman Catholic Church. So did my wife. We both went to Catholic school. We enjoyed our years in the Catholic Church as far as schooling was concerned and thought ourselves genuine Christians because we were baptized and confirmed in the church. But it wasn't until we started to read the Bible for ourselves that God opened our eyes and finally delivered us out of the false gospel of the Roman Catholic Church and its false teachings. 
And I am here to tell you how much I love Roman Catholics. I am not some anti-Catholic and just a Catholic basher. I want to see people delivered out of the darkness and the deception of the Roman Catholic Church, even as God delivered my wife and I. So please bear with me. Please listen with an open heart. You can always come up here and yell at me afterwards. But at right, for right now, please just try to listen to what I'm about to say. Many people believe, myself included, that the emerging church is not revival, it is a bridge. A bridge between the church now and the one world religion under the false prophet. A one world church that the Bible prophesies will come about in the last days, and many believe the Roman Catholic Church will play an integral part in establishing. Now, there are two schools of thought. We are One school says we are in the throes of the greatest revival the church has ever seen. Others say, no, we are right now confronting the greatest darkness the church has ever seen. Which camp is right? What does the Bible say? Conditions would be like just prior to Jesus' return. Does the Bible speak of a great revival sweeping the world? Well, let's see. You don't have to turn to these. Just listen. In Revelation 3, verse 8, Jesus is addressing the little church of Philadelphia in Asia Minor, but it's a church that represents the true church in the last days. And notice how Jesus addresses it. I know your works. I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength. In other words, you're not very large as a church. But you've kept my word and have not denied my name. The true church in the end was not going to be a large church, but a small group of faithful believers. Jesus said in Matthew 24, warning his disciples about the time just prior to his return. Take heed that no one deceives you. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. A worldwide spiritual deception. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul said, Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come, unless the falling away comes first, the great apostasy, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, the Antichrist. So the time just prior to Antichrist's rise to power would be characterized not by great revival, but by great deception and apostasy in the church. Paul warned us in 1 Timothy 4, verse 1, the Spirit expressly says, In the latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. So again, Paul is warning us in the last days we would see deception enter into the church that would deceive so many that many would turn from the faith. In fact, Paul went on to say to, to Timothy, a young pastor in 2 Timothy chapter 3, that in the last days perilous times would come. And he lists a bunch of things. And then he says, and men 
in the church would have a form of godliness, but would deny its power. What is this power? Romans chapter 1, verse 16. Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Greek. In the last days, people in the church would become ashamed of the gospel. They would downplay its power to do what? To save. We're going to see that in a moment. And then finally, in Revelation chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, again, Jesus addressing a church in Asia Minor called the church of Laodicea. But it represents the church, the organized church at the end before Jesus comes back. Listen to how Jesus described it. He said, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing and do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. This is the church in the end. A wealthy church, but a church that was blinded to its own bankruptcy spiritually. A church that Jesus would later say to that very church, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone inside you opens the door of their heart, I'll come into you and dine with you. Jesus Christ was not even in this church. He was knocking to get in. Well, you remember how the disciples came to Jesus one day and said, Lord, what are going to be the signs of your coming in the end of the age? What, what is the world going to be like just before you return to the earth? And Jesus likened it to the time before the flood in Noah's day. And like the days of Sodom and Gomorrah, not a time of great revival, but a time of great wickedness where only a few would be obedient to the word of God. And that's why Jesus said in Luke 18, verse 8, when the Son of Man returns, will he really find faith on the earth? The faith, the faith of the apostles, that body of truth that was committed to us, that we were supposed to contend for and guard and proclaim faithfully the faith which the church has not done such a good job guarding and promoting. And so the Bible says that there is coming a one-world government the Antichrist will take, be the leader of and a one-world religion or a one-world church that the false prophet will take charge of. This one world religion is going to be formed by a union of non-Christian religions with the apostate church. What is that? All those people who claim to believe in Jesus Christ but have never really been born again. And the church is loaded with these kind of folks. These apostates will join with religions of the world, non-Christian religions, to form what the Bible calls a one world religion. Now, there are several organizations that have been formed in recent years for the sole purpose of bringing together the different churches and religions of the world. One that you may be familiar with is the World Council of Churches, which was formed in 1948, now includes close to 350 Protestant denominations moving forward towards their goal, which is one holy church. There is another group called the United Religions Initiative, its charter 
for the unification of the world's religions was signed in June of 2000 to promote, this is their goal, to promote interfaith cooperation, to end religious violence, and to create cultures of peace, justice, and healing for all living beings, end quote. But without a doubt, the most powerful organization in the world working for a one-world church is the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church for a long time has seen itself as the global church of the future, headquartered in Rome with the Pope as its spiritual leader. The Roman Catholic Church has a well-defined strategy for accomplishing this agenda, we talked a little bit last week how for a long time the Roman Catholic Church has been building bridges to what it calls the separated brethren in an effort to bring about unity in the Christian church. These separated brethren would include Episcopalians, Orthodox, Methodists, Baptists, Lutherans, Anglicans, Evangelicals, and even Messianic Jews. They have a strategy, a well-defined strategy, and I'm thankful to ex-Catholic and Christian apologist and evangelist Mike Gendron, whose whole ministry is reaching out to Roman Catholics to deliver them out of the deception of the Catholic Church. Mike lays out the strategy that they have, first of all, to redefine evangelical terms to make them ambiguous, vague, and acceptable to all. So if you take the terms and you tweak them enough and make them vague enough, the lines are blurred between what we believe as evangelicals and what the Roman Catholic Church actually believes and teaches. This promotes unity. Another strategy is to take advantage of the lack of discernment in the church today. There is a great lack of discernment in the church of Jesus Christ today. And the writer to the Hebrews says that discernment is actually cultivated in our lives when we read and study and apply the Word of God into our lives. So what does that say about people today in the church and how they're digging into and studying and applying the Word of God? doesn't say much. Another one is to cover the Roman Catholic gospel of works with a veneer of truth. Now, there's a lot that the Roman Catholic Church teaches that is true. It's that part that is not true that gets you. I mean, the Roman Catholic Church teaches that salvation is by faith plus your works. You can't get saved unless you are baptized in good standing in the church, you keep the sacraments, you go to mass, indulgences, and probably even purgatory when you die because you probably won't gain enough good works in this life. All of this is necessary for you to be saved. The Bible teaches that we have been saved by grace through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not the result of our good works, lest any should boast. God does not want us in heaven all boasting about how great we were on the earth, that we earned heaven. He wants us to fall at the feet of Jesus in humble gratitude and praise for the work that he did on the cross in saving worthless, helpless sinners such as we also, another one is to promote the concept that Catholics, Orthodox, and Protestants are all brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, this was the whole goal of that document that was forged between evangelicals, which Chuck Colson was a co-author, another was J.I. Packer, and other evangelical leaders partnering with Roman Catholic priests and theologians to forge what they called 
ECT, Evangelicals and Catholics Together in the Third Millennium, a document that basically said, look, we evangelicals need to stop evangelizing Roman Catholics because they're already our brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, folks, I was raised in the Roman Catholic Church. I spent 22 years in the Roman Catholic Church before I got saved. My wife was also raised in the Roman Catholic Church. And i got to tell you, I was not saved. Even as all of you here, no doubt, who were raised in the Catholic Church will also testify to the fact that you went through the sacraments, you were baptized and confirmed, you went to Mass, but you didn't have a clue to the true gospel of Jesus Christ. But here comes a group of evangelicals and partnering with Roman Catholic theologians and priests to say, look, we're all one happy family in Christ. Let's stop evangelizing Roman Catholics. I'm glad the person that evangelized me didn't feel that way. Also then to urge separated brethren to come home to the Holy Mother, the Roman Catholic Church, for what they call the fullness of salvation. Even though after the Reformation, these so-called separated brethren were labeled heretics by Rome, and killed by the tens of thousands, and their property was confiscated, I guess that was just a big mistake. Now the Catholic Church says, no, 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 they're separated brethren. We have to encourage them to come back to the Mother Church. And also they are targeting, the Roman Catholic Church is targeting key evangelical leaders to help them in this cause of unifying the evangelical church and the Roman Catholic Church. How effective have they been? in implementing this strategy among evangelical leaders. Let me give you some quotes. You'll recognize every one of these names. Robert Schuller said, and I quote, It's time for Protestants to go to the shepherd, the Pope, and say, What do we have to do to come home? End quote. Paul Crouch, president of TBN, said, and I quote, I'm eradicating the word Protestant out of my vocabulary. It's time for Catholics and non-Catholics to come together as one in the Spirit and one in the Lord, end quote. Pat Robertson said, and I quote, My meeting with His Holiness, Pope John Paul II, was very warm, and through a personal letter to the pontiff, I pledged to work for Christian unity between evangelicals and Catholics, end quote. Chuck Colson, president of Prison Fellowship and co-author of ECT, said, and I quote, we evangelicals and Catholics have differences, but on the ancient creeds and the core beliefs of Christianity, we stand together, end quote. Now, I have a hard time believing somebody like Chuck Colson doesn't really understand what the Catholic Church is really teaching. No, we don't stand together on the core issues and core doctrines. That's what the Reformation was all about. The Catholic Church said, Faith plus works equals salvation. The reformer said sola fide. Faith alone is how we get into heaven. Jesus did all the work. Jack Van Impey said, and I quote, Pope John Paul II is a strong defender of the faith, end quote. And here's one I thought you might be interested in. I have found that my beliefs are essentially the same as those of Orthodox Roman Catholics. Billy Graham. In fact, Billy went on to praise Pope John Paul II as a preacher of the true gospel and for his strong Catholic faith, hailing him as, and I'm quoting Billy, the greatest moral and spiritual leader of the last 100 years. He went on to say, I don't know anyone else that I could put as high as he is. 
He's traveled the whole world spreading the Catholic faith. He and I agree on almost everything, end quote. Now, I respect Billy Graham immensely. In fact, I respect a lot of people that are getting involved with the Roman Catholic Church. I just don't understand it. I don't get it. Does Billy Graham really understand all the Catholic Church and the Pope are teaching? I have to wonder. One ex-Catholic author and apologist had this to say about John Paul II. He said, John Paul said he represented Jesus Christ, yet he lived in stark contrast to the Savior, who had no place to lay his head. The Vatican is extremely wealthy. On several occasions, the Pope denied that Jesus Christ was the only way to the Father. He foolishly proclaimed, if God is the one true God, he must save all people. A year later, he pronounced, all who seek God with a sincere heart, including those who do not know Christ and his church, contribute to the building of the kingdom. So really, I mean, you don't have to be a Christian. You don't have to believe in Jesus Christ. As long as you are sincere, God will accept your sincerity and bring you into, the, into salvation. Pope John Paul II also denied the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice by declaring punishment for sin could be remitted, listen, by abstaining from unnecessary consumption of tobacco or alcohol and donating a proportionate sum of money to the poor. So he claimed basically that you could buy your forgiveness, but earn your salvation by staying away from tobacco and alcohol and giving large sums of money to the poor. His perverted theology was also reflected in this pronouncement. He said, Hell is not a punishment imposed by God, but the condition resulting from attitudes and actions which people adopt in this life. So there is no literal hell. Hell is right here on the earth. Hell is what you enter into when you harbor bitterness and unforgiveness in your heart. That's hell. No, that's not hell. And finally, and he said many other things, when he addressed the Muslim leaders in 1998, he said that there is, quote, a common spiritual bond that unites us, end quote. Well, you know, there are so many evangelical leaders that are saying things and partnering with the Catholic Church. I just have a hard time getting my mind around it. Roger Oakland, founder of Understand the Times Ministry, said, and I quote, this spiritual myopia, has driven Rick Warren to make alliances with and promote, for example, Roman Catholicism as his purpose-driven teams trained them to fill up their churches. This was surprising to us at first, but it seems in recent years Rick Warren has discovered that there is very little difference between Roman Catholicism and evangelicalism. Rick said, and I quote, You know, growing up as a Protestant boy, I knew nothing about Catholics, but I started watching ETWN, the Catholic Channel, and I said, well, I'm not as far apart from these guys as I thought I was, you know. Oakland goes on to say, does Warren even realize that the core reason for the Reformation was the irreconcilable difference in the way the, that Catholics and the Reformers viewed the gospel itself? He said, brave people bled and died for the great difference that Warren no longer sees, end quote. And he's not the only one by any means. But Paul the Apostle warned us. He tried to warn us of what would happen in the church in the last days. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, Paul said, For the time will come when they, and he was talking about people in the church, would not endure sound doctrine, 
But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. And they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. Paul warned us that in the last days, sound doctrine, good, solid teaching from the word of God would be diminished or denounced or discarded altogether. We're seeing that so clearly today as we studied the emerging church last week. They don't believe the Bible is absolute truth, authoritative, infallible. It's kind of a soft truth, a relative truth. I heard one teacher just this week in an emerging church doing a teaching from the Gospel of Mark saying, you know, it's not important whether the story is true or not. It's only important that you get out of, the, out of it the meaning, what God is saying to you. Yes, it's important if it's true or not. If the Word of God is not the Word of God, God's infallible, authoritative, inspired truth, what are we doing? Living with, in the light of it or, 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 you know, making decisions based on what God has said. It's amazing. But people today don't want sound doctrine. They want to gather teachers to themselves that will tell them what they want to hear. What do they want to hear? Today it seems they want to hear less and less doctrine and more and more messages that preach unity and love. And I'm all for unity and love, by the way. Paul the Apostle said to the Philippians, I pray that your love would abound more and more, but also that your discernment would abound as well. Jesus Christ prayed for unity among his believers. The night before he went to the cross, he said, Father, sanctify them, unify them by your truth. Your word is truth. You see, without doctrine, we become ignorant to God's truth. And without truth, there could be no true unity. Even as the prophet Amos asked, how can two walk together unless they are what? In agreement or one. I mean, can evangelicals really agree with statements like these? Pope Pius Twelfth said, we must not pass over in silence or veil in ambiguous terms the truth of Roman Catholic teaching, that the only true union is by the return of separated Christians to the one true church of Christ, the Catholic Church. Otherwise, none can be assured of eternal salvation. Boniface VII said, We declare, say, define, and pronounce that it is absolutely necessary for the salvation of every human creature to be subject to the Roman pontiff, end quote. And Pope Pius IX said, and I quote, those who are obstinate towards the Roman pontiff cannot obtain eternal salvation, end quote. You know, do the Roman Catholic leaders that are partnering with Rome, excuse me, the evangelical leaders that are partnering with Rome, I wonder if they really understand what the Roman Catholic Church is actually teaching. That there is only salvation through the Roman Catholic Church. They've always believed that. There is no salvation apart from the Roman Catholic Church. And for separated brethren, we need to get them back into the mother church because if they don't come back into the church of Rome, they cannot be saved. Now, a lot of evangelicals would say, wait a minute, and a lot of Catholics would say, well, Vatican II changed all that. Folks, Vatican II changed none of the core doctrines and teachings of the Roman Catholic Church. It made some superficial cosmetic changes, but it did nothing to affect the core doctrines of the Roman Catholic Church. And I challenge you to prove me wrong on that point. It's amazing to me how many evangelicals, 
pastors, teachers, theologians, authors are jumping on the Roman Catholic bandwagon. Well, the Roman Catholic Church is not just reaching out to other Christian denominations. They are reaching out to other faiths around the world. Pope John Paul II, addressing 1,500 leaders of the great world religions at the International Prayer Meeting in 2001, said, and I quote, to these various religions, he said, we can no longer bear the scandal of division. We all have to come together as one. In 2002, Pope John Paul called for a meeting for, uh, called a meeting for peace in Assisi, Italy, Leaders from the Jewish, Buddhist, Hindu, Islamic, Orthodox, Anglican, and Protestant religions all attended. They all came at the beck and call of John Paul II. At this meeting, the name of Jesus Christ was not mentioned one time. And all Christian symbols, including and especially crosses, were all covered so as not to offend anybody and so as to promote unity. Paul the Apostle said, that the preaching of the cross is offensive to those who are perishing. But for those who are being saved, it is the power of God unto salvation. Vatican II states, and I quote, The Catholic Church rejects nothing of what is true and holy in other religions. Their doctrines often reflect a ray of truth, which enlightens all men. Let Christians preserve and encourage the spiritual and moral truths found among none. Christians, end quote. The Roman Catholic Church is sounding more and more like the mother church of a one world religion. When asked, can you get to heaven without Jesus, Nigerian Cardinal Francis Arins, the Pope's deputy for outreach, answered expressly yes. God's grant of salvation includes not only Christians, but Jews, Muslims, Hindus, and people of goodwill. So, doesn't matter if you believe in Jesus. If you're sincere, if you're a sincere Muslim or a sincere Hindu or a sincere Buddhist or just simply a person of goodwill, whatever that means, even if you don't know Jesus, never heard of his name, he will honor your faith and your sincerity and save you. Well, there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end thereof is the way of death. And Jesus said, there is a broad way which is tolerant and inclusive, but leads to destruction. And there is a narrow way, a difficult road. It's the way of the cross, and only a few find it. Folks, what was the Great Commission about? If everybody who was just sincere to the faith that they grew up with is saved, why did millions of missionaries die over the centuries who were so burdened to reach souls for Christ that they would go into remote areas with vicious uh, tribal peoples because they wanted to see these folks reached with the gospel and saved. And they died in bringing the truth to these people in darkness. What was the Great Commission for if anyone who is sincere gets into heaven? But believe me when I tell you this, this is being echoed by many Christian leaders today, men like Dallas Willard and even Billy Graham. I just heard with my own ears. I could let you listen to it an interview on a Christian radio show where Robert Schuller was interviewing Billy Graham. And Billy Graham, I heard with my owner say, look, he believes that if a person is sincere and they live up to the light that they have, no matter what religion they belong to, 
And if they've never heard the name of Jesus Christ, he believes that Jesus will honor that faith and will save that person. And Schuler stopped and said, am I hearing you right? Did you actually say this? And he repeated it. And Billy said, yes, I believe that. And Schuler was all excited and said, that's a wonderful thing. God's grace is very wide, isn't it? Yeah, it's the broad way. But it isn't God's grace. It's a false gospel that's being promoted in the last days. And I'm shocked that people who ought to know better are beginning to say that you don't need to believe in Jesus Christ to get to heaven. They are, in essence, ashamed of the gospel. Even as Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. But you have to believe in Christ to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Well, John Paul II was very much into promoting world unity with regard to different religions. On more than one occasion, he gathered together at the Vatican for prayer. And you think I'm making this up, I'm not. Witch doctors, spiritists, animists, Hindus, Buddhists, Muslims, and other leaders of world religions declaring that they were all praying to the same God and credited their prayers with generating, these are his words, a profound spiritual energies that he believed would create a new climate for world peace. Do you remember when we were doing our look at the New Age movement a few months ago? And we mentioned something that took place in the mid-80s where New Age people from all over the world decided that they could all visualize world peace on the same day at the same moment, 12 noon Greenwich Mean Time, and they believed that if they all visualized world peace at that same time, it would create a critical mass of consciousness that would catapult the world into a new age. It was called the harmonic convergence. Now, I'm not saying that Pope John Paul was a new ager, but he's sounding very new age here. If we can just get enough people together, world religious leaders together, no matter what they believe, and we can all pray, because we're all praying to the same God, right? If we get enough people together, it will catapult the world into a new day of peace. After the first service, somebody came up to me and said, I got shivers up my spine. I said, what do you mean? He said, today is the very day that Pope John Paul II died. And he claimed that this present Pope Ratzinger has said, at exactly the moment that John Paul II died, he is going to offer a prayer for world peace, a prayer that he believes will bring the world into a time of peace and prosperity. Well, you know, in John 17, Jesus said, Father, I don't pray for the world, but those whom you've given me out of the world. And Jesus never told us as Christians to pray for the world. He never told us to clean up the fish pond. He only told us to fish in it. He's going to take care of the world when he returns. All right, so this unity that's being promoted among Christian faiths and religions, different religions around the world. You say, well, how is this going to happen? Well, I think there's going to be some focal points, some, some focal points of this unity. John Paul II said, and I quote, The Catholic Church endeavors to gather all people and all things into Christ so as to be for all an inseparable sacrament of unity expressed in the common celebration of the Eucharist. The Eucharist. I believe the Eucharist is going to be one of the focal points in the unity of the world church. John Paul II also called for a missionary vision 
centering on a rekindling of amazement focused on the, the Eucharist to bring the world to the Eucharistic Jesus. You're going to hear more and more about this Eucharistic Jesus, who was a false Jesus, by the way, another Jesus, as Paul talked about in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. But you're going to be hearing more and more about the Eucharistic Jesus as time goes on. In fact, you'd be amazed right now if I to realize how many Christian leaders are becoming enamored with the Eucharist. I'll give you one, Dr. Robert Weber, a respected evangelical professor, author, has authored over 40 books, been teaching in Christian universities for many, many years, and in his book, Ancient Future Evangelism, he had this to say about what he thinks the church will look like in 25 years and the place the Eucharist will play in that future church. And I quote, A brief glance at the teaching of the Eucharist from the pre-Nicene period provides insight into the early church's understanding. The fathers taught, the church fathers, that continual spiritual nourishment was provided to believers at this great feast. First, he said, it is clear from the writings of Justin Martyr in the middle of the second century that this is no empty symbol. Christ is really present in the bread and wine. He feeds us in the remembrance of his salvation. He feeds us through his presence, which is accomplished through prayer, end quote. The Roman Catholic Church believes and teaches that during the Mass, the wine and the wafer are actually turned into the literal body and blood of Jesus Christ, which when you then take and eat, you gain some spiritual power and strength because you're feeding on Jesus' literal body, drinking his literal blood. It's called the doctrine of transubstantiation. And it's amazing how many evangelicals are becoming enamored now with this whole idea. Pope John Paul wrote a book. It was highly praised by 250 evangelical leaders. Listen to what he wrote in this book. He said, Baptism and the Eucharist create in man the seed of eternal life. Of course, it rejects entirely the sufficiency of Christ, his sacrifice for us, and his victorious, triumphant cry on the cross, It is finished. The work of salvation is done. For you to benefit from it, all you need to do is to receive it by faith. However, Vatican II begins this way. It is the liturgy through which, especially in the divine sacrifice of the Eucharist, the work of our redemption is, get this, still being accomplished. You see, Rome has always taught that anyone who dares to confess and believe that they have everlasting life right now, Rome anathematizes them in the strongest terms. What does that mean? Condemns them to the lowest hell. Not even the Pope himself knows if he has eternal life. He won't know that until he dies and stands before the Lord. He might have to go to purgatory for a while. And any Pope who says, and they, none of them would, of course, but any Catholic including the Pope, who says that they have received Jesus Christ and have eternal life, are to be condemned to the lowest hell. Even though when John wrote his first epistle in chapter 5, he said, This I have written to you, who believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you have everlasting life. And this life is in the Son. Whoever has the Son has everlasting life. Well, 
I think the Eucharist is going to play a big part in the unity of the world church. I also think that Mary is going to play a very large role. In fact, she is playing a greater and greater role in the Roman Catholic religion. We all know, if you're a Catholic especially, that Pope John Paul II was totally devoted to Mary. Totally. Especially to Our Lady of Fatima, whose apparition appeared and declared, and this is a supposed appearance of Mary, this apparition appeared and declared this. This is what she said. All religions are the same. Many souls perish because they have no one to make sacrifice for them. That's a clear denial of the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice for all of our sins. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of what? The whole world. John says that Christ is the propitiation for our sins, but not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. In his apostolic letter, dated October 16, 2002, John Paul II ended it with these words, and I quote, I entrust this apostolic letter to the loving hands of the Virgin Mary, prostrating myself in spirit before her image in the splendid shrine built for her by blessed Bartolo Longo, the apostle of the rosary. I willingly make my own the touching words with which he concluded his well-known supplication to the queen of the Holy Rosary. It says this, and I quote, John Paul said, I have made these words my own. O blessed rosary of Mary, sweet chain that unites us to God. I thought the blood of Christ united us to God. Tower of salvation against the assaults of hell. Safe port in our universal shipwreck. We will never abandon you. You will be our comfort in the hour of death. Yours, our final kiss as life ebbs away. And the last word from our lips will be your sweet name, O Queen of the Rosary of Pompeii, O dearest Mother, O Refuge of Sinners, O Sovereign Counselor of the Afflicted, etc., etc. A lot of Roman Catholics claim that the Roman Catholic Church does not worship Mary. I don't know. When you read these words out of the mouth of their pope, it seems obvious that he's worshiping this woman. In fact, embroidered inside all of John, John Paul II's robes was the phrase, Totus tuus sum Maria, Mary, I am totally yours. John Paul II asked Catholics to cultivate an authentic spiritual ecumenism through not Jesus Christ, but through the Virgin Mary. I said earlier, the Roman Catholic Church is partnering with the Muslims. You might have stopped and thought when I said that, wait a minute, are you kidding me? How is that possible? Well, Muslim leaders have already joined with Rome to oppose abortion. Many Muslim leaders are ecumenists. On May 14, 1999, a delegation of so-called Christian leaders and Muslim leaders from Iraq visited the Pope in Rome. They gave the Pope a special copy of the Quran. He kissed it and expressed his reverence for it. Official Catholic declarations claim that the Muslims worship the one true God. For example, this is what the Catholic Church teaches. The plan of salvation also includes those who acknowledge the Creator. In the first place, amongst whom are the Muslims? And together with us, they adore the one merciful God. Well, we studied Islam a little bit. 
And we tried to show you, many Christians are harboring under a strong misconception. And it is the God of Islam, Allah, is really just another name for the God of the Bible, Jehovah. That is absolutely false. The God of the Bible, it says, is spirit. Islam says that God, Allah, is not spirit. The Bible says God is personal. Islam says Allah is not personal. The Bible teaches that God can be known. Islam says Allah cannot be known. The Bible says that, the, that God, the true God, is a trinity made up of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Islam says Allah cannot be a father for he, ha he hasn't fathered anyone. Jesus is not his son and the Holy Spirit isn't even a person. The Bible says that God is limited by his nature. In other words, God cannot lie. God cannot deny himself. He cannot do anything that is contrary to his nature. He can't sin or do evil. He can't even tempt anyone to do evil. But the Quran says that Allah is not bound by anything. He can do anything he wants to do. He can say something is true and then turn around and say it's false. Also, Allah is considered the author of evil since the Muslims believe he has created everything. That means he must have created evil, and they agree with that. But it's interesting, very interesting, how that the veneration of Mary is bringing Muslims together in unity with the Roman Catholic Church. You say, how so? Muslims esteem Mary is the most revered woman who has ever lived. Why? Because she chose to appear in a place called Fatima in Portugal, a city named after Muhammad's first daughter. Expect to see more apparitions claiming to be Mary, appearing in different parts of the world, encouraging different groups and different religions to all come together in unity. Because this Mary has already said, we're all the same. The human race worships the same God. And so we all need to come together. Look what is happening before our very eyes. I'll leave you with one final scripture. Please turn to it, Revelation chapter 17. I don't have time to go into the background and time develop, to develop this passage. Many Christian commentators believe that this chapter is dealing with the final world religion headquartered in Rome, but no doubt a world church, which by this time in Revelation 17 contains many different denominations and religions from across the world, and God is going to judge the whole thing before Christ returns. Verse 1. Remember now, this is the Apostle John who saw this vision of the end times, the church, the organized world church, right before Christ returned. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me, saying, saying to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication. This would be spiritual fornication, unfaithfulness to the truth and to the true God and his Son, Jesus Christ whom the kings of the earth committed fornication with, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy,
having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. You get the picture? This world church is a very wealthy church, extremely wealthy, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. She is a church leading the world in false worship. It's an abomination in the sight of the true God. On her forehead a name was written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. I don't have time to develop that, but I'll tell you what, do a little research into that statement. But it's interesting to me that the church, Roman Catholic Church is calling itself the mother church. God is calling it a mother too, a mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. And listen to what John said. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. Why? Because John was an apostle. He was a church father. And he is getting a glimpse of what the church is going to look like in the last days. And he is shocked. It doesn't look anything like the church that Jesus committed to his, disciples, his apostles. It's not a church that's being persecuted by the world because it's standing up for the truth. As Jesus said, Woe unto you when all men speak well of you. They did the false, so they did the false prophets who came before you. But when they persecute and they blaspheme, and they kill you, rejoice, for great is your reward in heaven. That's the true church. This church is not being persecuted by the world. It's married the world. A wealthy church. And John is shocked because it is drunk with the blood of God's true saints. It is a church that is killing the true people of God in the name of that God. And John said, I, I couldn't believe what I was seeing. And then he goes on to say in verse 18, And the woman who you saw in that great city, which reigns over the kings of the earth, excuse me, and the woman whom you saw is that great city, which reigns over the kings of the earth. And many commentators believe that is a reference to the city of Rome. Folks, we need to wake up. We are being prepared right now as we speak, right before our eyes. The church, the apostate church, is being drawn into what is the beginnings of a global, one-world religion that will include many different religions and Christian denominations, I believe headquartered in Rome with the Pope as its spiritual leader. We are living in the last days. Jesus Christ is coming back soon, and God is calling a people to himself out of the Catholic Church, out of the Protestant. Don't think that the Protestants are any better in many ways. There are a lot of people in Protestant churches who go to church, have a form of godliness, but have never really bowed the knee to Jesus Christ, have not given their lives to Christ, who are doing their own thing, and yet come to church once a week and give him lip service. Look, there is a lot of hypocrisy and apostasy throughout the entire church, Protestant, evangelical and Roman Catholic and Orthodox churches. And Jesus Christ loves them all, but is calling out for himself a true church. Because what will be left is going to be an apostate church 
that will join forces with other religions in the world to form a one world religion, which will be a world church that will be judged by Jesus Christ before he comes. We are seeing it forming before our very eyes. But take heart, because I always think of the words of Elijah, who lived at a time of great apostasy in Israel, where everybody, it seemed, was worshiping Baal and Ashtoreth, the kings of Israel. The prophets, the priests, had all turned, it seemed, to idolatry. And at one point, Elijah fell in the presence of God and said, God, kill me. I can't bear to see it anymore. I can't bear. I'm the only one left of those who have not turned to idolatry, Lord. I'm the only one left who truly loves you and keeps your word. And what did God say to Elijah? He said, Elijah, take heart. I've got 7,000 in Israel who have not bowed the knee to Baal nor kissed his image. 7,000 is not a lot when you compare it to a whole nation. In the last days, the Bible does not talk about a great revival that will sweep the world. It talks about great apostasy and deception that will sweep the church and the world. And only a few would walk in truth and would stand up for the truth. May God give us grace to stand up for the truth. These are perilous times, as Paul said to Timothy. In the last days, perilous times would come. We are in those perilous times. We must stand for truth and speak the truth in love. Speak it in love, but speak the truth. Even if it offends, if you love somebody, you will tell them the truth even if it does offend them. We don't want to see anyone going to hell because they were clinging to a false hope. May God give us the grace to be and to remain in that faithful remnant that we might hear our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ say to us someday when he comes for us, well done, good and faithful servants. You've finished the race. You've kept the faith. Now enter into the joy of your Lord. Father, we thank you that you have given us your truth. Your word is truth, Father, and you told us in your word what we could expect to see in the last days. Why have so many missed it, Lord? Why have so many Christian leaders missed the obvious warnings and are following after false doctrine and false alliances in the name of unity when you said that unity, true unity, can only happen when it's based on the truth. And Lord, give us grace to walk in the light of your truth. It is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And if we walk in its light, we will never stumble in darkness. Give us the grace, Father, to do that in these last days. For we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.